the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, uh, joined by United States Senator Tim Scott, who is running for president. Good morning, Senator. I look forward to seeing you next week in Miami. Well, thank you for being there, number one. It's good to have a, a conservative at the podium helping us uh, navigate the questions and have a serious conversation about why the conservative platform is the path to a stronger, healthier, more vibrant America. Well, thank you. I look forward to it, Senator. I want to begin with the breaking news. The NBC Des Moines Register Mediacom poll published an hour ago. Uh, former President Trump in Iowa has 43 percent. Governor DeSantis and Ambassador Haley have 16 percent. You are in fourth place with 7 percent. Uh, Governor Christie at 4 percent and Vivek Ramaswamy at 4 percent. Uh, that's a down for you. How do you react to those numbers, Senator? Well, it's one of the reasons why we're heading to Iowa and staying there consistently, because we realize that, historically speaking, Iowa voters, they break late in the cycle. And that's great news, having an opportunity for us to continue to share our message and to do it uh, full time in Iowa will be very helpful. And also, we, we have to remember, historically, uh, 2011, 2015, it was Herman Cain and Ben Carson were leading in the Des Moines Register poll. So we are excited about where we are. We have made the decision that it's Iowa or bust for us, and I'm looking forward to being there. Uh, Senator, I'm asking all the candidates this when they come on my radio show. If you don't finish first or second in either Iowa or New Hampshire, will you exit the race? You know, I'm not going to make any predictions other than that we will be in the top two in Iowa without any question. All right. So let me move now to the, uh, the issue of Israel and Gaza. Do you have any timetable for Israel? Do you think there ought to be any timetable for Israel to finish its operation to eliminate Hamas? I don't think there should be a timetable, number one. Number two, we should give the support, the resources, and the backfill necessary for Israel to be able to be effective, to have an overwhelming dominance, and to finish the conflict as soon as they possibly can. That requires the United States of America to stand shoulder to shoulder with no daylight with Israel, as opposed to having a president who speaks with a forked tongue supporting Israel during the middle of the day, but then delaying Israel's progress at night. That is a terrible strategy. We should be full-throated in our support of Israel. Now, Senator Scott, you know that the Department of Justice has a division of civil rights, and the Department of Education has an office of civil rights. Either or both of those could be investigating Cornell, Columbia, anywhere where anti-Semitic uh, actions have taken place. Do you intend to ask officials from those departments when they come before your committee, if they ever come before your committee, if they have investigations opened up? For example, Cornell, which has had to close the kosher dining hall because of threats against it. 
Well, one of the things I've said very clearly is I am now leading on legislation, new laws that will pull federal funding from schools that refuse to hold their students accountable for the advocating of mass murder, for supporting genocide, and for supporting terrorism. I believe that our college campuses have become hotbeds of indoctrination, not education, and you can see that glaringly obvious as you think about those Jewish students on college campuses who are told to go run and hide in attics, who feel threatened on the campus, and the administration on the college campuses refuse to do anything about that. They do not deserve the federal funds. Now, this Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Education has been very activist and very left-leaning over the past 20 years. Have you seen anything from them in initiating even one investigation of one campus? Hugh, not a single thing. That's one of the reasons why you have to fire Joe Biden, fire the entire political appointees in the Department of Justice and the Department of Education, and refocus on having Lady Justice wear a blindfold. We cannot have our Jewish students, our Jewish Americans, afraid to walk on the streets of New York or afraid to go to uh, class on a college campus. The way you reverse that is having America and our Department of Justice Department of Education, and every good American standing in the gap for our Jewish citizens and students. Now, Senator, I want to turn to the topic of mass shootings has happened in very close to where I live during the summer in Maine, and, and the state is shook up. I know you've been active in legislation on police reform and on gun rights. Can you tell us what Tim Scott believes about background checks and about whether or not people like this killer ought to be able to have weapons and when red flags are appropriate or not appropriate? Well, one of the things we've seen in Maine and, frankly, in most of the states where we've seen the mass shootings, that the background checks, had it been in place like they were supposed to be, many of the shooters would not have been eligible to have a gun. I think back to Charleston, South Carolina, my hometown, where the shooter, the, 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 the racist who walked into a church and killed nine African-Americans simply because of the color of their skin during a Bible study. That person was ineligible for the weapon. Had we had the background system working, that is the goal, and it's the challenge that we have is to make sure that all the information that should be in there is in the system, and second, to make sure that the Proper authority responds within that three-day window. The next thing I'd say is that most of the states already have red flag laws. What we're learning is having the kind of access to the information is important. Uh, The main killer literally has sent a number of signals for weeks and, frankly, even a year earlier, and those were ignored. Senator, the one thing I I want to follow up on, uh, the New York Times reporting this morning that the killer in Maine had mental health issues. A gun shop owner was approached by him to purchase a silencer, and the gun shop owner turned him down because of the NICS check. Should gun shop owners who who get a red uh, a no, who are denying someone, ought they to be obliged to contact police in the hometown of the person who's provided their appropriate form and and who got dinged by the NICS chest? You know, one of the things that we should have is the interconnectivity necessary through the different layers of local, state, and federal government 
where you have the access to the information sent to the local police office as well as the state police office, if that were to happen, we would have the kind of blanket so that when there is a red flag within the system, all levels of government can see the same information in real time. That is something that should be easy to, to, to actually achieve. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Last question, Senator Scott, goes to the economy, and the economy has gotten buried by the massacre in Israel on 10-7 by the the shooter in Maine. In the Wall Street Journal this morning, it says, does strong growth fuel inflation, Fed debates whether old models still applies? It does. So my question to you, if you were in the position of President Biden, would you be jawboning Jerome Powell to keep rates going up? Because it just seems to me with 5% or nearly 5% growth in Q3, inflationary pressures are going to continue. Well, listen, one of the things that suggests is that the separation between the, Depart- the, the Federal Reserve and the administration should remain. There should be a firewall between the two. But what we've noticed over the last two years is as inflation has gone up, there's no question rates have followed. The 11 consecutive rate increases were caused by the 16% inflation in our economy, which was driven by the actual spending in Washington and not the production in the private sector. One of the ways that we reduce inflation and slow down the rate increases is for us to stop spending money in Washington so as to allow the private sector to be the engine of our future and not Joe Biden and the public sector. As it relates to the ability to bring rates down, as inflation continues to come down, I believe that will bring our rates down. The 4.9% that we saw this last quarter in economic activity, I think actually foreshadows a very difficult second half of 2024. Very last question, Senator Scott. Your friend, Jim Lankford, is co-sponsoring with Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire the Prevent Government Shutdowns Act, which would basically keep the government funding by cutting existing appropriations. Do you support that act, or is that sequestration under a better name? Well, no, there's no doubt that having the responsibility to get your job done is a good thing. Uh, James Langford's approach to it is a solid one. Looking at all the details, I don't know all the details, but freezing spending and or having a small decrease is actually a good thing. Uh, So I would encourage the support. The concept of the legislation, of course, I would want to read it first, but yes, freezing and then reducing spending is always in the right direction, especially 
when you're dealing with a shutdown. Would you exempt Defense Department spending from that, Senator? I think what you would have to do is take a look at the overall spending, the $4.8 trillion of, 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 of revenue coming in, $7 trillion going out. So the question is, where are the essentials? And so every, every office, whether it's making sure that Social Security continues to, to function, Medicare continues to function, our military continues to be paid, our, frankly, our Border Patrol agents and our law enforcement apparatus. So there is always, that's one of the reasons why the devil in the detail, is in the details, making sure that the umbrella of our law enforcement emergency responders that are embedded in the federal government are exempt from that would be necessary. But seeing the construct of the legislation that provides a glide path of reducing spending, that is a good thing. Making sure that it's not across the board where it hurts our law enforcement officers and the federal agencies to provide first response. That would be a bad thing. Senator Scott, always a pleasure. I will see you a week from Wednesday in Miami. Thank you for joining me today and keep coming back. I appreciate it very much. God bless. I have Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. Good morning, Governor. How are you? Well, I'm good. Good to be back with you. Uh, can you fill us in on Measure 1 in Ohio, which is a radical abortion rights initiative? Is it winning in Ohio, or is it going to go down to defeat? I know you're urging people to vote no. Tell us about it. I think it's going to be very close. Uh, yes, it is a radical proposal. Uh, it would make Ohio one of the most liberal states of the union in regard to abortion. Uh, it has it does a couple big things. One, it provides that abortion can occur at any point uh, during the pregnancy, uh, absolutely any point. Uh, the second, uh, it would override Ohio's parental consent law uh, and make it so that parents would not necessarily be involved in, in that decision. So two big, big things uh, that make it uh, just uh, it's really not right for, for Ohio. Uh, just goes much, much, much too far. I mean, whether people are pro-life or pro-choice, uh, it just goes goes too far. I mean... Many, many people who are pro, pro, pro-choice pro certainly do not want to see abortion, uh, you know, in the late, late term. Governor, it's an off year in Ohio. I don't know what your turnout's going to be. Abortion rights absolutists, the, the extremists in pro-abortion land, they will show up. Will the pro-life community show up? And what about the voters who just generally don't check in unless it's a presidential election? Uh, been a lot of uh, money spent. Uh, the the pro-abortion side of this has been spending a massive amount of money. Uh, uh, You know, they've got money from uh, source-connected organizations. Uh, They have money, even the governor of Illinois put in a half a million dollars, if you can believe that, uh, in Ohio, to to get this passed. So they have a lot of money. But, um, you know, there's a real understanding, I think, uh, and we're certainly, my wife and I are certainly working to get that understanding uh, across the state. We did an ad that is running in Ohio, uh, you know, talking about just how this is not right for Ohio and how it goes much, much too far. I'm headed right now uh, at this moment to a door-to-door operation. Uh, we have volunteers. We've had a lot of volunteers out going door-to-door. So I think it, this turnout is going to be pretty high uh, for an off-year off election. 
So, Governor, in terms of early voting, do you have any indication whether Measure 1 is losing? Again, uh, Ohio Republicans, Ohio conservatives, Ohio pro-lifers are urging a no vote. Even some Democrats are urging a no vote because Ohio is a red state, and this is a radical measure. Uh, Measure 1 is just radical. Have you had any Democrats come to your side, Governor? Well, we have an ad running now I, uh, with a woman who identifies herself as, as pro-choice. Uh, I don't know whether she's Democrat or Republican, but she she identifies as pro-choice, and her message to the people of Ohio is that this goes much too far. It just goes too far. Uh, so, I, you know, again, I think that if you look where people in Ohio are on the abortion issue, uh, there's certainly, uh, you know, many, many, many different positions. But uh, even people who are pro-choice, um, most of them, if you look at the at the polling data, uh, most people who are pro-choice don't think that you should be able to have an abortion, that the abortion should be permitted, you know, up until the time of, of birth. Uh, this would overrule uh, Ohio's uh, ban on partial birth abortion. Partial birth abortion was developed by a doctor, uh, Dr. Haskell, in, in Ohio uh, a number of years ago. Uh, we've been able to stop it because we passed a law uh, against that, but... Uh, this constitutional amendment is written so broadly that it would certainly overturn that as well. So, Governor, I want people to understand as we wrap up, the folks who are selling uh, Proposition 1, uh, Amendment 1, are not being honest when they say it, uh, abortion can be limited in cases except for the life or the health of the mother. That's the old slippery slope. It just basically says whatever you want to do, wherever you want to do it in Ohio, Right. Well, there is an exception for, for health of the mother, but as you know, uh, if you look at how the Supreme Court has defined health of the mother uh, in previous abortion cases, it's extremely broad, extremely broad. And so that would you know, be the definition uh, that we would follow. It also uh, makes it up to the person who is the doctor who is performing the abortion to really decide that. And there's no really appeal or there's no there's no oversight over that. So it's the, that, you know, the person who's committed doing the abortion, uh, you know, it's, it's their determination whether the health this has to do with the health of the mother. And then if you look again, if you look at how health of the mother is defined, it's been defined very, very broadly by the court. So in effect, uh, even though they say, well, after viability, it would allow the state to regulate. The truth is uh, that it would be uh, essentially uh, at any point during the, during the pregnancy. If Measure 1 passes, it's unlimited abortion in Ohio. That's why you've got to vote no. Cincinnati, Toledo, Ohio, Cleveland, Youngstown, wherever you are listening this morning. Governor DeWine is right. Vote no next week on Tuesday. And if early voting is still an option for you, go vote no now. Thank you, Governor DeWine. Always a pleasure to talk to my home state governor um, out there leading the no on one campaign and working hard at it. Thank you, Governor DeWine. I'll be right back. America, stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, joined by United States Senator Tom Cotton, strong supporter of Israel. Good morning, Senator. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. It's good to be on with you. I guess I'm as well as can be expected, given the perilous state of the world. It is a perilous state of the world. I want to begin by asking you about urban warfare and how long you expect this to take. You have actually walked point on a platoon in Baghdad during the surge, so you have a little idea of what the Israeli Defense Forces are up against when they go into Gaza City proper. They're not there yet. How long do you expect their operation to destroy Hamas to take? 
As long as it takes, Hugh. Um, I, I suspect that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and his war cabinet, Yoav Gallant, the defense minister, and Benny Gantz, the leader of the opposition, like all Israelis, uh, would borrow a line from uh, U.S. Grant in the summer of 1864. They plan to fight it out on this line all summer long, if that's what it takes. Um, and I expect they plan to fight it out in Gaza for as long as it takes to destroy Hamas, not just as a military uh, or terrorist organization, but as a governing entity and a social movement. And uh, what they face in, in Gaza is much more complex, Hugh, than uh, what we faced in Baghdad, certainly what we faced by 2006 when I was there, uh, and it had been largely pacified, and you're facing an insurgency. Uh, Gaza is armed to the teeth. Um, you know, they've been laying in wait now for 17 years for a moment like this uh, with one big variable that Baghdad didn't have, which is the hundreds of kilometers of tunnels underneath Gaza. So it's going to be deliberate uh, and it's going to take some time. Uh, but uh, we have to back Israel to the hilt uh, as they fight uh, this war to uh, finally destroy Hamas once and for all. Do you think President Biden has articulated the length and depth and width of our support accurately? Because it's not what we've seen in the past. We can't just say four weeks and you're done, Israel. That happened under previous presidents. It's just going to take a long time, Senator. Has President Biden outlined why and how we will stand with Israel throughout that time? No, Hugh, not in the least. President Biden is already waffling and wavering uh, barely three weeks after the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. I mean, we're just in the preparatory phases of this war, Hugh. Uh, the ground operation is only now in its earliest phase. Yet over the weekend, you have President Biden once again putting so-called humanitarian aid before Israel's security needs. Um, Hugh, just so your listeners know, humanitarian aid to Gaza under current conditions is nothing more than resupply to Hamas. Hamas is the governing authority in Gaza. When aid is sent to Gaza, it's not diverted by Hamas. It's not commandeered by Hamas. It is accepted by Hamas. And yes, there are women and children and nursing infants in Gaza. Does anyone really think that they will be first in line for the water and the food and the medicine that we're supposed to send to Gaza? No, of course it will go to Hamas fighters who need it to fight or who need it to recover from injuries in this war. So under no conditions should President Biden be demanding that Israel provide humanitarian aid to Gaza or even open Gaza for humanitarian aid. And certainly, certainly U.S. taxpayers should not provide it. I mean, no one expected us to provide aid to Germany or Japan in World War II. Why would we do that for Gaza in this war? And in second, Hugh, after he President Biden this weekend put the humanitarian aid for Gaza, which again is resupply for Hamas ahead of Israel's security needs. He gave another patronizing lecture to Israel about the need to fight in accordance with so-called international law. Look, Israel, of course, fights in accordance with international law. Frankly, they bend over backwards and do a lot more than most nations would and that they're required to under those international customs and norms and traditions. Um, but... Hamas is responsible for civilian casualties when they place military targets on civilian sites like mosques or hospitals or schools. And while Israel doesn't go out of its way to target civilians, nor should it accept one bit of risk more for a single soldier in the IDF to uh, avoid a civilian casualty because of Hamas. 
Senator, I want to turn now to the domestic front. Uh, our alma mater has disgraced itself in the three weeks since the massacre of 10-7, but many colleges and universities have, most recently Cornell, where it became, where the Cornell police said to Jewish students, don't go to the kosher dining hall, we can't keep you safe. Have you seen the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Education or the Division of Civil Rights at the Department of Justice announce the opening of even one investigation in these three weeks? No, Hugh, I, I haven't. To my knowledge, they have not. Maybe it's, it's possible, but you know what we certainly haven't seen? We ha- certainly haven't seen a self-congratulatory press conference by Merrick Garland and, and other left-wing ideologues in the Department of Justice or the Department of Education announcing that they will investigate and hold account- accountable these vicious anti-Semites the way we did, for instance, when they announced investigations into Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia and his legislature for taking such terrible actions as expanding the number of drop boxes that a county could have during uh, early voting. So if, if this was a priority for the Biden administration, they would be out having press conferences and dislocating their shoulder by patting themselves on the back so hard. What that tells you is that it's not a priority. And why is it not a priority? Because a substantial uh, minority of the Democratic voting base is openly anti-Semitic. Look at all of these pro-Hamas anti-Semites who are marching on campuses at places like Harvard and Columbia and Cornell who are terrifying Jewish students, forcing them to hide in libraries or elsewhere. Who do you think those people are the shock troops for? Those are the people who are out marching in the streets during the BLM riots in 2020. Those are the people that Democrats are counting on to mobilize the vote in many communities across their voting coalition. That's why Joe Biden is already waffling and wavering in part, because he's terrified at the polls that show his collapse in approval rating among Democrats, not among independent Republicans, but among Democrats. So, no, there is, to my knowledge, not a single investigation going on. And even if there is an investigation at the Department of Justice and the Department of Education into this outbreak of anti-Semitism, they're certainly not celebrating it. They're not trumpeting it. They're not highlighting it at press conferences the way they do investigations into Republicans. You know, in 1986, when I was at the Office of Personnel Management, I got scrambled to go down to do a voting rights observation in Yazoo City, Mississippi. And we, we mobilized we're on the ground in 48 hours because that's what you have to do to secure voting rights in 1986 in Yazoo City. I have not seen the dispatch of any investigators to Cornell, to Harvard, from either the Department of Education or the Department of Justice to observe and report back to decide whether or not those universities are doing their jobs. Do you think there will be a hearing on this, Senator? Well, something tells me, Hugh, that we're not going to have a hearing in the Senate controlled by Chuck Schumer and Dick Durbin and Bernie Sanders, of all people, uh, and our oversight of the Department of Justice and the Department of Education. Uh, but I'm confident that the Republican-led House of Representatives will be looking into it. Again, the reason they're not taking these steps, or at least that they're not highlighting and trumping these steps as aggressively as the example you cited or the steps they took to investigate Republicans over the last three years, is because they don't want to further antagonize their substantial anti-Semitic block of voters. And that's just a simple fact to you. I mean, look, it's not the Republican Party that sends people like Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar to Congress. It's the Democratic Party. And on campuses, some of the most left-wing places on uh, in this country where we've seen this outbreak of anti-Semitic pro-Hamas activism, again, that's the base of the Democratic Party. That's why Joe Biden and his administration is not manning the ramparts against it. 
Senator, I want to switch to guns for a moment. In the aftermath of the slaughter in Maine last week, I've been trying to figure out how the NICS system works. And I understand if you attempt to purchase a weapon and you have a felony conviction, an admission of a, a drug conviction or addiction, mental illness or institutionalization, domestic violence, harassment or stalking, or you are under charge or you are a fugitive, you can be denied a weapon. And this individual, this killer in Maine, attempted to buy, I believe, a silencer in Maine and was denied. My question is, what happens after you're denied? Does the gun seller have to tell the police or anything, or are you just denied? Well, Hugh, I don't want, because I don't know many of the details about this terrible murder in uh, Maine, I don't want to get too far into those details. I want to extend my condolences to all Mainers, to include my friends and colleagues, Susan Collins and Angus King and the Mainers they represent. Um, as is often the case in these mass murders, a uh, person appears to have obtained the gun legally, despite a significant history of mental illness or other troubling facts that should have been caught by the NIC system, that should have been reported. Um, so, again, I, I don't want to get too far in the details or lay blame um, or assign responsibility yet. I think we need to uh, let all the facts come to light. But, no, uh, under these circumstances, as I understand them, um, I, I think the laws and the systems in place should have been enough to stop this man from obtaining weapons. Um, again, that's my, my kind of um, high-level understanding, subject to further understanding of the facts as they come out. Uh, Senator, to your knowledge, have we had the, the manifesto from the Nashville shooter released yet? No, this is the, the transgendered uh, person who shot up a Christian school who supposedly within a day or two, we learned, had written a manifesto. I've not seen that come out at, uh, public at all. Um, which is unusual. Typically, when these things, when these kind of shootings happen, they're released. That's why it leads to so much suspicion among many Americans uh, that it probably is something that doesn't play into the media and the Democratic Party's favored storylines about these shootings. And therefore, they go to great lengths to try to keep it uh, private. Again, I don't know. I haven't seen it. But many Americans see these trends and tendencies and become very skeptical about the secrecy of our authorities. Last question, Senator. The administrative state is vast. It's enormous. How in the world do people get their faith back, whether it's the CDC or the FDA or the Department of Education Office of Civil Rights or any uh, Department of Justice persecution of Donald Trump? How do they get their, their faith back in the federal government? Well, it, it takes some accountability to you, and that accountability is not going to come until we have a Republican president. Um, and then there needs to be a substantial house cleaning at the senior reaches of many of these agencies, in addition to a broader effort to rein in their power. These agencies are not run by people elected by Americans to represent their views. And that's the president, and that's 535 members of Congress. And there needs to be a substantial effort, which will only happen when Republicans are back in charge, to hold them accountable, to impose more future accountability to the president and to the Congress on them so they are no longer unaccountable, in effect, lawmakers setting their own policy for the country or abusing the authority that they do have. Senator Tom Cotton, always a pleasure to talk to you. Follow him on Twitter at SendTomCotton, the site formerly known as Twitter, now known as X at SendTomCotton. Thank you, Senator. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.